I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm speaking today with Sona Dimijian, PhD. Sona is the director of the Renee Crown Wellness Institute and professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Her research focuses on cultivating mental health and well-being among women, children, and families by engaging people's capacities for learning to care for themselves and their communities. She develops and studies programs and practices in education and healthcare settings with an emphasis on navigating key developmental transitions, such as the perinatal period, early childhood, and adolescence. <clears throat> Current projects in Sona's lab focus on preventing depression and supporting well-being among new and expectant mothers promoting healthy body image and leadership among young women, and enhancing mindfulness and compassion among youth, families, and educators. In 2019, Sona co-authored Expecting Mindfully, Nourish Your Emotional Well-Being and Prevent Depression During Pregnancy and Postpartum, to which I contributed. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Sona. Much, Sharon. It's really an honor to be here with you. It's really delightful to talk to. So, congratulations on your new book. Thank you. And I thought it would be nice to just begin our conversation 
with a little bit of your story, how you came to practice, how you came to your path? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I was thinking, actually, as you were reading that introduction about the um, importance of transitions in people's lives. And I think my first experience of meditation was high school. And actually, um, in part for my my dad, who um, had had a long-time meditation practice himself. And um, I think it was really you know, speaking of times of transition, it was awareness of, you know, this incredible period of inner and outer transition that characterizes adolescence for most people, I think, and really wanting to find some solid ground in the midst of all of that. Um, And I'm not sure I would say that, you know, the practice of meditation necessarily provides solid ground, but I think it it helped me discover this capacity within myself to have a place to rest, you know, to actually embrace in a way that was um, welcoming of all the change that was around me. So that was really my first introduction to meditation, which seems like a million years ago at this point. Um, And then I would say I I went to college at, uh, at the University of Chicago, which is a very, you know, heady and intellectual academic place and was really, which I loved. And during that time, I I think I steered away in some ways from personal practice and really, you know, delved into a much more, you know, scholarly and scientific approach to similar kinds of interests and questions Um, but much less with an emphasis on personal practice. And it wasn't actually, I would say, until I was in graduate school, at at the end of my second year of graduate school, my graduate advisor, with whom I had worked very closely, um, died suddenly of a heart attack. And that um, was a really... uh, difficult experience for myself, my, the other people in our lab, his family. Um, it was so, uh, you know, just, there was so much shock and grief that Mm. followed that. And I think at that time, I, um, there was something that pulled me back to those early experiences of meditation, um, and some kind of knowingness that had been planted, you know, much earlier in life, and I, um, I, I renewed a daily practice at that point with much more um, focus and clarity, I would say, and also, you know, was, uh, as a clinical psychology PhD student, really um, seeking a way to integrate that personal practice of mindfulness with the scholarly and empirical academic work that I was doing. So I would say, you know, the, in some sense, um, that was a really formative period for the research and clinical practice that I've done, you know, since that time, which is, it, it is, 
20 years ago this year that um, my advisor passed away. Mm. Well, that is extremely intense. And uh, it's interesting that you had something to reach for, mm-hmm. you know, that was somewhat in your past, but was still in many ways still present. Yeah, I I do. I think that, you know, um, the practice of meditation is one that I think people often turn to in times of struggle or suffering. And it's the exact, your reflection about having something to turn to during difficult times, um, I would say has actually been, it's been a guiding force for me in the research that I do because it really has been oriented to what are, in what ways can we help provide opportunities for people to learn mm-hmm. when things, um, you know, maybe going relatively well that will help them build knowledge and skill that is then there and available to them when times are more challenging. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that that, that is a, it's a really critical perspective. Um, uh, And it, it, I think it's a way in which, you know, the, the clinical science and meditation practice have really um, converged in some really interesting and productive ways. So in, in your new book, which came out earlier in 2019, Expecting Mindfully Nourish Your Emotional Well-Being and Prevent Depression During Pregnancy mm-hmm. and Postpartum, was the population, it was intended for people who might be seen as susceptible to depression or people who were actively depressed during the yep. pregnancy and postpartum? It's a great question. So so that book is is grows it comes out of research that we've done that has um really focused on this question of for women who have had some personal experience with depression, and this can be at any point in their life, so in their life, so it doesn't necessarily have to have been, you know, previous pregnancy or in early parenting, mm-hmm. you know, are at increased risk of um, struggling with depression during the perinatal period. So we were really interested in asking, you know, this this kind of same question that grows out of your reflection, which is, if you know that by virtue of having been depressed in the past, that you that you carry an increased risk of having a relapse of depression during pregnancy and postpartum, what what is it that one can do to help protect oneself from depression coming back during this life cycle phase? And that that really um, that's been the guiding question, and and is really the focus of that book. Um, you know, women who have some vulnerability mm-hmm. to to depression, um, to responding to stressors, um, or even to times of of uncertainty um, with challenges with mood or with anxiety. Well, it's such an important topic, and it's one that's still surrounded by a fair amount of stigma and misunderstanding. Do you think that it's getting, uh, like, postpartum depression? Um, 
is getting significantly uh, more prevalent, or do you think it's just kind of the same? You know, it it there are more and more people who are willing to speak out and speak up, I think, about their experience of depression, the experience of mental health struggles in general, and there is still a tremendous amount of stigma mm-hmm. that people experience in general, and I think in particular during this life cycle phase. I think we still, you know, uh, carry as a culture this idea that pregnancy and becoming a parent are, you know, quote, should be the happiest times mm-hmm. in a woman's life. And, and you know, that is informed by, you know, just decades of uh, really stereotypes more so than science about what are the normative experiences of women in general, as well as women who may be more vulnerable to depression during these times. Um, So while I think there's increased attention and, you know, there are a number of, of individuals as well as advocacy groups like Postpartum Support International who that have, you know, worked for years to to really combat um, stigma associated with depression during pregnancy and early parenting. I still think there's a lot, a lot more work that needs to be done. And that is both the inner work of embracing and really um, allowing space for one's own challenges and vulnerability. And it's the outer work of um, being willing to have these conversations in places that, you know, people may not have in the past, being willing to both ask for help as well as I think, you know, for those of us who are in teaching and helping and scientific um, professions and disciplines, really being willing to put an emphasis on how do we share the skills and knowledge that we've developed in ways that will be more accessible for people in daily life? Well, it certainly seems that there may be specific needs in that that community of moms or moms-to-be that are perhaps not being met in the more general offerings of meditation and mindfulness these days in our culture, even as mindfulness gets more and more widespread. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of um, people, as we were discussing earlier, turn to mindfulness or meditation um, as a source of uh, support and a source of healing. And while that can be the case for many people, I do think that there are um, ways in which a specific focus on what is the nature of of mind, really, for people who are vulnerable to depression, um, that that specificity has has value and it has it has power in people's lives. And the work that I have um, done in this area, um, in collaboration with my uh, colleague and friend Cheryl Goodman, has really been grounded in this approach of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy which was developed by another dear friend and collaborator, Zindel Siegel, um, as well as Mark Williams and John Teasdale. And that approach really seeks to bring the 
the wisdom that exists in the tradition of mindfulness meditation and the the theoretical and empirical um, knowledge that exists in cognitive therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and to integrate those in a way that, you know, I think the in some sense, like the whole is is greater than the sum of its parts with mm-hmm. that approach because um, because it brings both the power of mindfulness meditation and the the specificity of a focus on where do people get stuck mm-hmm. um, who are vulnerable to depression and what are some really specific ways that we can engage mindfulness to help provide um, freedom from those stuck points. Well, isn't it the case, um, I'm certainly not a scientist, but uh, that the research shows that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is a pretty effective remedy for dealing with depression? Particularly effective for helping people to prevent relapse into future episodes of depression. Mm -hmm. So in, in the research we've done with women during pregnancy, Women who um, who did an eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive therapy class um, were protected from relapse into depression, 85% of women, in contrast to uh, only 50% of women who received, you know, usual care within a large HMO setting. And so that's a, that's a, a substantial and, you know, statistically and clinically significant difference and really speaks to the ability of an eight-week class, essentially, eight weeks, you know, two hours a week, as well as daily practice in um, providing a context for learning skills that, that help women stay protected from depression during pregnancy through um, six months postpartum. So those are pretty compelling data. And then when we look to the research in the general population, we can see the the enduring benefit of these um, uh, experiences in this learning, you know, up to two years of uh, uh, studies of up to two-year follow-up periods in people's lives, which tells us you know, using some of the most rigorous scientific methods and and comparisons that learning these skills provides protection long after people are done taking these eight-week classes. And to me, that says something about the transformative power um, of this learning in people's lives. How did you recruit the women for the study? We um, we shared information. The the a lot of the research that we ha, uh, have published to date has been within the Kaiser system, um, uh, both in Colorado as well as in Georgia, and we basically shared information um, in the context of prenatal care clinics and. Um, uh, are you interested in um, learning about how to stay well? Um, and how to protect your mental health during pregnancy and the postpartum. We're doing a study now that actually is a, a national study um, that's in partnership with um, Mass General Hospital as well as Baby Center, um, uh, which is the 
a large online community of uh, pregnant and parenting um, people. And and in that study, we're recruiting um, pregnant women from all over the country um, who will either um, go through the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course in a form that we delivered, uh, we developed to be delivered entirely online. So they can have these training experiences, you know, from the uh, comfort of their own living rooms um, or uh, really all over the country. And we're really interested in understanding if we increase access to these, um, to these skills and to this training, um, to what extent will that help protect women's mental health? And I'm curious if there was if there was a partner involved in mm-hmm. the in the family configuration, did you involve yeah. them as well? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the things that um, we know from research on the ways in which people are vulnerable during pregnancy and early parenting and, you know, really throughout our lives is when we lack a supportive community and when we lack um, people who who support us in our efforts to be well. And so one of the very um, first experiences in the in both the book that we wrote and the classes that we teach is is to actually map out who are the people in your life who are close to you and who support you. So if we were working together in this way, we would, you know, kind of draw a picture with you in the center and then begin to talk about who are the people in your life and how how close and how available or how distant are they. And then from that sense of the ecosystem of your life, to identify a person, and it it could be the um, it could be the other parent in the family system. It could be a friend, a neighbor, another relative. Um, it could be someone next door or someone across the country, but someone who is willing to support you in your process of learning, in your daily practice, um, and to really be a champion for for uh, women during pregnancy and early parenting in both learning these skills as well as taking the steps that are needed to look after themselves um, during this this transition period. Well, I'm sure it's really tough in part because there's such a myth about the mother, you know, mm-hmm. who has mm-hmm. it all together. I mean, I can remember listening to somebody, she was giving a lecture about something, and and she said um, when her second child was born, uh, she went into this period of just like this tremendous anguish and comparing herself to her mother, who was always mm-hmm. like well-groomed, and mm-hmm. the house was immaculate, and her house was in complete disarray, and she felt like she looked a mess, and then she remembered, yeah. oh, her mother had a maid, you know, right. <laughs> and she didn't. Right, right. And even if we don't have those examples in our personal lives, they're, they are all over the place in the media and movies and and so, and they're in our kind of cultural, you know, psyche of expectations of what we, um, the, the standards to which um, mothers hold themselves. And so, 
one of the things, um, one of the activities that we guide in the class and in the book is actually to to articulate, to look closely at um, what are some of these myths around motherhood, and they're they and we they are statements like it's not okay to ask for help. Mm-hmm. I should be able to do all of this. You know, my job is to care for other people. I can look after myself only after I've taken care of everyone else. Um, asking for help is is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And so one of the goals of this program is actually to, to develop this skill um, that as researchers and psychologists, we we um, often describe as the skill of decentering, which is this capacity that is is such a core part of mindfulness meditation. It is this this capacity to notice thoughts as they arise without getting hijacked by them, without getting sucked into them, um, uh, without um, you know getting pulled off center by them. And so to notice thoughts as they arise in, in this, in a space of wider awareness. And so for, for, for women during pregnancy or for um, people in early parenting, it's often these sorts of, as you said, myths that, that are about the, whether or not it's okay to rely on other people. And so to begin to notice those as just that, as thoughts that arise and ones that we can become curious about rather than automatically reacting to. So noticing in a moment of feeling overwhelmed, this thought, there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Everyone else has it together. Everyone else can handle this. There's something wrong with me that that I um, am overwhelmed in this moment and to notice that as a thought in a greater field of awareness and to get curious about that, you know, rather than having that thought have the capacity or the power to really knock you off center. One of the things you talk about in the book is the process of connection and mothers connecting with the baby and how the states of disconnect that often accompany depression can affect a mother's ability to bond with her child. And I can remember when we were working on the meditations together Uh and and you would suggest things like, uh, you know, feel the weight of the baby in your arms and uh, now smell your baby. And I'd say, really? You know, (laughs) you sure? (laughs) But we went with it, you know. We did, and you know, it's a it's a it's a beloved um, meditation practice by many of the women with family <laughs> work. Because here's the thing that often happens is that when um, or when when women during pregnancy or early parenting, when they hear about mindfulness and they they may begin taking. A class or um, reading the um, book that we wrote, that sometimes what can happen is that mindfulness practice itself becomes incorporated into that system of 
self-judgment, mm-hmm. expectations, criticisms, and these, you know, these standards to which we we measure ourselves and often fail. Mm-hmm. And so mindfulness practice becomes like one more thing that I have to do in order to be a quote, good mom. Mm-hmm. And for for people who are taking care of kids and working and have so many demands um, on their time and their lives, the the expectation that they will also add to that to meditate 45 minutes a day Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can itself be another way in which they're failing. So what, what I think women um, really love about that practice of mindfully holding your baby, mindfully walking with your baby is this, is this, invitation to bring these skills of awareness and curiosity and non-judgment into these everyday moments that themselves provide an opportunity to practice without having to add, you know, another, um, another item on your to-do list. Um, uh, and so the ability to bring mindfulness into everyday life is um is such a beautiful synergy of how to care for yourself and how to care for your child at the same time. Seems like there used to be much more clear-cut roles in parenting based on cultural norms which are kind of in disarray or at least change. And in 2019 there's just about every permutation of what it means to be a parent and what it means to be a family. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how this reflects on the emotional challenges of parenting. Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, I think that um, one of the benefits of um, mindfulness practice and one of the areas that we focus uh, a lot in the book is on the um, vulnerability that I think can be created by um, comparing mind. Mm-hmm. So comparing oneself to some um, standard, whether or not it's a standard that, you know, you confront in the culture around you or one that, you know, you, that you carry around internally, even implicitly. This, the training the skill to to notice when, that comparing mind is present mm-hmm. and again to become curious about that to um to notice it and to let it go when it's not helpful or supportive for you i think is a really critical skill when you know when we we are all living in a time of um you know a lot of change and uncertainty so I think families today for um, across the board, whatever the, whatever the structure or form and however we define family, we all are living in a time of um, increased uncertainty and I would say increased challenge and, and um, decreased support really mm-hmm. that's available. Um, we, I think, live in a culture right now that 
um, does not prioritize or value in really substantial ways the act of caring. Mm -hmm. And so whether or not your family is a family of, you know, caring for a baby or young children or a family of caring for um, a loved one uh, uh, with whom you're connected in whatever form, caring for um, parents or relatives, you know, caring for your extended community or neighborhood, that those those acts of caring, I think, um, structurally, our culture right now really deprioritizes, and I would say in some pretty um, practical ways, um, devalues um, those facets of our lives. And so I think you know, that's a challenge that we all face, which is to really um, embrace and value the importance of caring, you know, not only for ourselves, but caring for one another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that impacts all of us in whatever structure or whatever ways we define what family is. One of the really beautiful things about so many different forms of what we call families or recognize as families is that um, all those sort of like little secret things are mm-hmm. out in the open, you know? Like, yeah. Like people just say, oh, right, that's part of life, you know, that a family can look like this or a family can look like that. And uh, I'm curious as to whether, because I'm close to several families where the family was created through adoption. Mm-hmm. If there's been research that either you've done or that you know about, about that kind of family coming together. You know, one of the things we've been working on, um, and this relates to both um, the work that we're doing um, during adolescence, as well as, you know, the work we're moving into in terms of um, pregnancy and early parenting, is really um, thinking more critically about the role of gender and how we think about gender. And um, and so beginning to become, I think, more conscious even in our languaging mm-hmm. um, so that we, you know, can, you know, in some ways, I think it's, it's important and valuable to speak about um, the specific experiences of people who identify as women and in other ways, I think it's really helpful to move into less gendered language and mm-hmm. talk about pregnant people and people who are parenting um, and to begin to hold a more inclusive lens for mm-hmm. thinking about mental health and these life transitions. And um, that's been really critical in our work with adolescents and increasingly so in the way we think about pregnancy and early parenting. So one of my questions was going to be about what's next in the world of your research. So you talked about the national study. um, And then there's this part, which is very, very interesting about more inclusive language and Mm -hmm. uh, recognizing the world as it is. Yes. Exactly. You know, one, in in, um, in thinking about do, having this conversation together today, Sharon, I was, I recalled a moment, I, I must have been, 
I don't know, maybe even definitely more than 10 years ago of a day of practice that I had the opportunity to do that you led at Mm -hmm. the Garrison Institute. Mm -hmm. And maybe even 15 years ago at this point. Um, And it was, you you guided a a loving kindness practice, um, a sitting practice, and then you invited all of us to go out and to do a loving kindness walking Mm -hmm, practice. mm -hmm. And in that practice was this opportunity to kind of, as I recall, and you can, you can amend this um, uh, if, if this is inconsistent with your memory of the teaching, but as I recall, it was this practice where we walked outside and it's this beautiful, you know, setting. um, And to, to share this loving kindness with whatever, um, creatures or plants uh, or people one um, came into contact with as they were walking. Do, do you yeah, yeah. Rec- recollect from this practice? So this was a time when I think I was actually transitioning from being a graduate student at the University of Washington to moving um, uh, and taking this as a, you know, first faculty position at the University of Colorado Boulder here. And I, at that time, was feeling, I think, a sense of loneliness and also this sense of, like, I was leaving behind these people who had been really important teachers and this sense of moving into this phase of life when I was intended to become the teacher Mm -hmm. as opposed to having all these teachers um, and mentors on whom I had relied. And as I walked around doing this loving-kindness practice, sharing loving kindness with a blade of grass, with a butterfly, with a tree. It was this moment of realization that there actually are all these teachers all around us all the time. And seeing these really beautiful teachings that existed right there in front of me, just in our natural world, the way a butterfly can land with so much grace and beauty in a moment, and have a moment of pure stillness and then be off in flight. You know, the way in which, um, you know, a car can, without awareness, sort of trample, um, uh, you know, the grass. And yet, like, there's still blades of grass that that rise from, you know, that weight that Mm -hmm. was on them. And so really, like, in that experience, realizing that there are, there are teachers and there is expertise and wisdom all around us. Now, I, I share that with you because that experience was a really eye-opening for me, and I think established an a, an important foundation in a kind of humility about what is a teacher or who is a teacher and who is a student mm-hmm. and where teaching resides in our world. So one of the aspects of the work that I and my colleagues are doing right now that is so exciting and really enlivening and gives me so much hope and optimism and um, 
in the world in general right now is through the um, Crown Institute that has really um, emphasized, is really emphasizing in our work the uh, importance of participatory approaches to research. And so what that means is that um, we are structuring research teams to include not just people like myself who have expertise from graduate training and, um, you know, the the kind of scholarly um, backgrounds that we bring, we see that kind of knowledge and expertise as, as important and also as really partial. So I'll give you one example. We spent the day today, my colleague um, Zindel Siegel and I, Uh, He was here visiting from Toronto with a project that we have right now called Mindful Campus that includes um, seven or, you know, uh, eight undergraduate students that includes um, uh, a number of graduate students, staff from the Division of Student Affairs on our campus. staff and campus leaders in academic advising, um, faculty from the School of Education, from the Department of Religious Studies, from Psychology and Neuroscience, all working together with with a shared understanding that we are all students and we are all teachers, that we all have expertise um, to bring to this question of how can we together collaboratively design a mindfulness program that will address the um, the needs of students on our campus and the culture and climate that exists here. And that, that kind of research um, undertaking, I, I draw the kind of kernel of valuing learning from all all of these different sources, um, you know, the the seed of that actually goes back to some of those early meditation practices mm-hmm. and that early mindful um, and loving kindness walking practice of recognizing, seeing the wisdom that is around each of us and finding ways to open our eyes to that and to create a platform for um, people to be active partners in this in this work of developing and studying new and transformative ways of bringing these practices into people's lives. Well, that's really beautiful. And I'm wondering, we have just a few minutes if you want yeah. to lead a, a short practice. I would love to lead a short practice. I um, I would love to lead actually a very brief practice that, um, speaking of new areas of, of work and research is, um, comes from my, you know, as a core practice in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and, um, is the practice of the three minute breathing space. Mm-hmm. And this practice is one that, um, another area of work right now that is really, um, central to what to a collaboration between myself and Zindel Siegel that really is focused on 
how do we increase access and make these practices more available to people in daily life? This three-minute breathing space um, has proven to be such a, a central part of what has been a benefit for people from the broader mindfulness-based cognitive therapy mm-hmm. program. Um, in part because it is this way of weaving mindfulness into both everyday moments of our lives as well as uh, it's a support that's available to us when times are challenging and difficult. So I'd love to share it with Great. you. Yeah. So the first, um, the beginning of this practice in part because it is such a brief practice, is to bring an intentional posture that is both alert, so signaling from the body to the brain a sense of alertness and awakeness, and also has a quality of ease and relaxation. So allowing your posture, whether you're sitting or standing in this moment, to be upright, And at the same time, noticing any extra tension or tightness or holding. For some of us, it may be in the jaw or the neck or the shoulders. And just allow, as best you can, tension to almost drain from those parts of the body to bring a sense of ease. If it's helpful, you may close your eyes. Or allow your gaze to rest on a single point just before you. So this practice involves three steps. And we'll begin with simply becoming aware of what is in our experience right here in this moment. Noticing thoughts that may be present in the mind, noticing emotions, and perhaps briefly scanning the body, noticing, simply becoming aware and acknowledging sensations that may be present in the body. Allowing and acknowledging whatever is in your field of awareness right now, pleasant or unpleasant, simply opening and asking, what is my experience right now? And then when you're ready, in the second step, we invite awareness to gather at the sensations of breathing at the belly, focusing moment by moment on the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. As best you can, bring your awareness again and again to the pattern of movement at the belly. Allowing the breath to be an anchor for your awareness.
simply feeling, breathing in and breathing out. And now in the third step, inviting awareness to expand from the belly, including not only the breath, but a sense of the body as a whole. Allowing awareness to be spacious, holding your full experience in this expanded awareness. Breathing, sitting or standing, allowing awareness to be open and wide. And then when you're ready, allowing your eyes to open and as best you can, bringing this expanded, more spacious, an anchored awareness to the next moments of your day. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for speaking with me today. If you'd like to learn more about Sona's work, you can check out her website at www.colorado.edu slash wellness institute. Thanks to all you listeners. This has been the Meta, this has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be happy. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.